0: Do you like data centers? Because I love data centers!
1: I love data centers. I do love data centers. I love data centers. I live in Breeze. I do. love data centers.
0: I love data centers. I love data centers. I love data centers. I love data centers. Welcome to the I Love Data Centers podcast. This is your host, Sean Patrick Terrio. I am truly humbled and honored that you've taken the time to spend some time with me today. Before we jump in, I'd like to let you know that this episode is brought to you by you. That's right, folks. This podcast exists because you want it to, and despite requests that come in for sponsorship, we have no paid advertising supporting this show. This approach gives me the opportunity to maintain an unbiased voice while conducting these interviews. I do have one request and ask of you, however. If indeed you do find these podcasts interesting and valuable, I would greatly appreciate it if you would do me the simple favor of recommending and sharing it through whatever medium you choose, offline or online. If you want to throw a hashtag I love data centers in any online shares you do, even better. Thank you once again, and I hope you enjoy listening to this next interview as much as I enjoyed recording it. Welcome to yet another I Love Data Centers podcast. This is your host, Sean Patrick Terrio. I have with me Josh Williams, uh, who I've known actually, as I was just texting you earlier, I just realized since September of 2016, Josh is the VP of Solutions Engineering at INAP, uh, formerly with single hop, which was acquired by INAP not too long ago. And we are going to have a fun conversation about a variety of topics, uh, primarily around how the client conversation has been changing with different managed service providers over the years. Uh, But Josh, without further ado, I'd love for you to just briefly introduce yourself um, to to our audience.
1: Thanks, Sean. And uh, thanks for having me. So uh, yeah, I feel like uh, this is probably the earliest time we've ever had a conversation. So I'm pretty excited about it. Usually our, our conversations are much later in the evening about a, a wide range of topics. But, um, so my name's Josh Williams, uh, as Sean mentioned, I'm the vice president of solution engineering here at InApp. Um, you know, my background comes, uh, I started in the industry back in 98, um, dot com era, um, lived through that. Um, have you know been? I've done a wide range of things in my career. Whether it's you know operations, running operations, building data centers, to um, building out practices around different um, disciplines and, and technologies as you know it, it, they've evolved over the years. So, um, well, Josh, let's let's focus
0: on that specifically because I want I want our audience to know. Uh, a little bit of that piece of your background, which is you—you you didn't come from instantly jumping into the service provider side of the house. You spent a lot of time on the client side of the house, right?
1: Yeah. So, um, the, I would call—I mean, at this point, almost the first half of my career. Um, if you know, if, if anybody's old enough, um, I started as a webmaster for a hosting company that did development and hosting for Fortune 500s so um you know my customers at the time were you know like united airlines maytag those types of things and you know we built data centers we built the applications we hosted those applications so um you know that's where i started my career and you know throughout my career i, I did that and then you know the dot com fallout um i managed a couple large applications for a couple key customers but we were we were taking some pretty re- uh, big reductions and uh I got asked to stay on, um, the day before, um, I was gonna, you know, I was packing up my boxes on my desk and, um, I was a developer for three years. Um, so, and I learned a lot being a developer about business, um, not just writing code, but, you know, um, I'll call it how applications drive business value. And then, um, I moved over to financial services uh, and got back into the infrastructure because I really, you know, although I learned a lot developing, um, I love building applications. Um, I'm an engineer at heart, so I like to take things apart, put them back together. Um, and, you know, I think that's, you know, my development kind of acumen taught me better to work with other lines of the business to develop, you know, infrastructures and build infrastructures that can scale and are reliable and, and, and drive monetary value. So, yeah, I mean, it, it it was a really fun part of my career. Um, and then I, I ran into a, you know, a period where, you know, you're a senior architect, um, the mortgage, uh, you know, I'll call it, I don't like use crisis, but fallout happens and budgets get really tight. Well, you get paid to spend money and build things and you're no longer building. And, you know, although maintaining is always part of the job, um, you know, redoing work that you'd already done just didn't really excite me. And so I, t- I call it, I took my game to the other side. And wanted to help, you know, just not one customer or internal customers, but but multiple customers.
0: Well, I love um, one of the lines that you stated, because it's almost the core of the conversation that we're going to be having today, which is how applications drive business value, right? That's, yep. that's the crux of the conversation that... Uh, those who are successful in our space, they understand that paradigm and they know how to have that conversation. And it's more than just understanding the buzzwords around it; it's understanding the real needs and value in that conversation. But before before we go there, um, I do want to say that it's almost rare for me to interview someone who actually has a CIS degree. <laughs> it's funny enough, shockingly enough, you know, with the thirty-some. 30-some interviews that I've done so far, most people don't have computer engineering degrees, despite the fact that they're executives or engineers in our space. Um, But with with that in mind, I'm curious, Josh, you know, we're we're similar in age. You must be in your early 40s, right? 42? Uh,
1: Yes, I will be 43 in October.
0: Nice. Um, So when you were growing up, where did you grow up first and foremost? And what was the first, uh, you know, memory that you have of, of computers and, and playing with technology and what got you fired up to get into CIS as a major?
1: So, uh, it, you'll find the story, uh, funny, but, uh, so I grew up in the, uh, south side of Chicago, um, where the majority of my friends and, and you know, people I went to school with, um, their dads were cops firemen they all work for the city because you know where we lived was uh, a part of the city where a lot of firemen like city workers live because in chicago if you know chicago um in order to work for the city you have to live in the city so um uh, you know uh, as you know being similar age growing up uh the closest thing to technology growing up was atari um and then you had Nintendo and things like that, so computers were were something, but you had to be a i 'll call it a pretty wealthy family at that time to to have a computer and and we just didn't i didn't have a computer. My first believe it or not like real kind of using computers on a day to day basis was almost college. yeah, I did some stuff in high school, but i just it was like a it was like a typewriter on steroids um you know, so we weren't really I never really kind of understood you know what we were doing around computers, but um it wasn't until like my kind of third day at, at, at college when I started getting assignments for classes, and they go, so i gotta go to the computer labs and uh I had to take my room my roommate had to take me in and figure out like hey uh you know we gotta figure this out um we had a computer at home at the time, I think right around that time right before I left for college, but that was my first kind of true experience of like I gotta use a computer now um so my my roommate and a uh, you know a lot of my friends kind of had to help me through my first semester and just navigating computer and I had to figure out whether I liked uh uh Mac OS or if I liked windows or or whatever and i you know both were pretty foreign Windows was less foreign to me but uh Mac was really foreign to me.
0: Let me let me back you up real quick because there's there's some interesting Chicago uh, connections that we have because I I grew up on the north side so I'm I'm a Cubs yep. fan which I'm a little disappointed about because they just blew a five run lead in the ninth, <laughs> bottom of the ninth and gave up a freaking grand slam home run to lose the game but besides that I know you're I know you're a Sox fan um, but the the neighborhood that you grew up in is pretty interesting and I only a couple of years ago even knew that it existed when I was in Denver. Uh, talking to someone who was telling me about this neighborhood that they grew up in, which is kind of like it's it's an island within the south side of Chicago that very few people know about. But uh, speak a little bit about this little island and and why it exists and how it got to be what it is.
1: So there, there's a few islands, I'll call it on, on, on the south side, that um, are kind of uh, bootstraps kind of, or kind of, you know, they border uh, like suburbs and and things like that. So, um, and to be to know. be
0: clear for those listening, the South Side of Chicago, when Josh and I were growing up, was not a safe area. It was known as as kind of the where the um God, what do they call it, the projects were were located in Cabrini Green, and and a lot of the gang activity in Chicago was down in that area. It has since evolved a decent amount, but. Well, and I, and, I think,
1: and I think even growing up, uh, you know, the neighborhood that I lived in, and I think that, you know, I think everybody gets pretty wound up about South Side of Chicago and, and Chicago in general about, you know, crime and all these things, right? And, and the reality is, is that, you know, if you look at kind of the, the concentration of crime in general, it, it's really in two kind of prominent areas. But growing up, um, I would say that, you know, my neighborhood as, you know, if I look from, I moved into that neighborhood uh, in second grade. And at the time it was a, you know, a pretty good kind of uh, I'll call it middle-class, a lot of working class um, uh, families and it, it goes through a transition. So, you know, it, you know, because everybody, you know, it's kind of like waves, right. Um, as you have the evolution of Chicago, nicer neighborhoods come in, people, you know, the, the demographics uh, shift, but yeah, I mean, it was, It's kind of funny because you had a bunch of rough, like, uh, you know, kids kind of growing up, you know, and, you know, fist fights after school are a common thing just because that's how you prove things out. So um, it's kind of funny, but these islands, you know, you have kind of these rough kind of tough, like, uh, you know, kids, but you kind of learn, uh, you know, you ever hear the term school hard knocks? It's kind of like, you know, you kind of learn hard knocks, you know, doing that because it tests you every day. Um, And it's about, you know, being, I think, mentally tough and things like that. Now, is it fun? Absolutely. It was great growing up in the city. I learned so much. Um, I remember, you know, um, you know, hopefully my parents aren't listening, but skipping, you know, uh, uh, the first day of summer school uh, and, you know, one year, uh, my freshman year. Uh, to to go to a Sox game and take the bus, you know. I just got on the wrong bus. I was supposed to go south. I went north, the thirty fifth Street, and then went to the Sox game at, at Old Comiskey. So, you know, those are the types of things as kids we did, um, and then hung out in parks and all, all that good stuff.
0: Yeah, it, I would hope, Josh, that by your age, the, your parents probably wouldn't give two craps about the fact that you skip school back in back yeah. in the day. <laughs>
1: Yeah, no, probably not. Hopefully not at this point.
0: All right. So let's 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 blast forward. I apologize for that uh, sidebar tangent. I just uh, I do love Chicago. Uh, I just couldn't stand the weather, which is why I moved to California (laughs) as soon as I as soon as I possibly could and spent some time out there before landing here in Raleigh. But um, you're still back in Chicago. And you were in college, you're figuring out computers and how they operate. Did you know going into college that you wanted to go into computer science? Or was that something that just evolved while you were there?
1: It's it's something that evolved uh, over time. So, you know, I got more proficient um, and I was on a business track. So, um, you know, anybody knows, you know, your first two years uh, of school, you're kind of figuring out. What you want to do unless unless you really you know for myself i didn't really know it was an accomplishment for me just to go to college um you know i was one of the first people in my family to go and i didn't you know i was kind of learning my way right so i didn't have a lot of alcohol you know mentors to kind of guide me to say here this is what you, you should be doing or thinking about so um it wasn't until so I was on a business track, whether it is management, maybe with marketing. I was kind of thinking, you know, marketing from that perspective, which is kind of funny how life comes full circle because I feel a big part of my job is marketing in some way, you know, whether, you know, in sales management and sales and then engineering. But, um, you know, I sat down, um, I remember uh, I was hanging out with a bunch of friends uh, over the summer at a cookout. And one of the girls that I went to, College with her mom was a a vice president of human resources at uh, a pretty large uh, uh, liquor uh, distributor and uh, importer, and she goes, you know, hey Josh, she goes, what do you uh, what do you want to do, you know, when you you get out of school? And I said, well, I I think I want to be in marketing, and she goes to me, she goes, okay, and she's asking me a bunch of questions, and then she goes well, you realize like in order to get a good job, like you're probably going to have to get a master's. And I said, well, I'm not, I don't really want to do like two or three more years of school after school. Um, I like, I just want to get out and get in the workforce. She goes, well, maybe you should consider, uh, a, you know, a, a job change and, or, you know, a, a degree change. I said, you know, and I kind of took that to heart and I said, you know what? And she kind of gave me and, and she ended up becoming a mentor for me for uh, a, a good period of time because, it was, she had, I respected her because she had, she was the person who hires people. So her, her word held a lot of weight and I kind of started to, it caused me to research um, what I wanted to do and where I wanted to be and what was, uh, where the kind of business was going. And I think, you know, at that point in my career, it was a pretty opportune time um, because technology was starting to really become prominent. It was the birth of the internet at that point. So, um, went back, looked at my credits, looked at what was available to me, what was gonna, you know, the internet, we started using the internet. I became more proficient with computers. And I was like, I kind of like building and designing things. And I like computers. So I, I found, uh, my computer computer information systems degree where I didn't lose I lost, I think, three credits by making that transition, um, at the time, but those three credits allowed me to get a minor in business management. So that's kind of how I got there. Um, it was a single conversation that caused me to, to think about, I'll call it my life and, and where I wanted to go and, and kind of what I wanted to like, you know, what, not what I thought I liked, but what, what I really liked.
0: Gotcha. I think that, that story is critical uh, for those who are listening because we do have a lot of folks who, who listen who are relatively new to the space or wanting to get into our industry. And I get the question a lot of what kind of degree they, sh- they should get in school. And my answer is always, it really doesn't matter. <laughs> what, what you need to learn yeah. in school is how to learn. And if you can learn how to learn, you know the sky's the limit as to what you can accomplish once you get out of school. Uh, but focusing on how to learn is first and foremost the the most paramount thing I
1: agreed hundred percent I mean I think in this industry especially um, there's never not an opportunity to learn. Um, I think that the best salespeople, the best agents the, the you know everybody that's out there kind of working um, they're constantly learning. The, the most successful are learning new things and they're, they have, I'll, I'll use the word adaptability um, they have the the ability to adapt to what's changing in the market, um, because the reality is, is what we were doing, you know, 15 years ago is is different than what we're doing today. And what we're doing today is likely going to be different than, you know, I would say in five years, we're likely going to be having to learn newer technologies that we're not familiar with.
0: Most definitely. Um so the next story I'd love to get into that I think people would be interested in, I'm, I'm definitely interested in, is the single hop story. So yep. let's fast forward um, to your, your in working at single hop, which I, I imagine was pretty young at the time. Um, I know when we met in 2016, I was doing a, a Delta Force IT training event inside the Sabe uh, data center off Pearl Street in Manhattan. And you came to uh, to help tour through the, the single hop presence in that facility with the group that we had there. Um, but how long had you been at single hop at that point? And just walk me through and walk the listeners through what the evolution of that company was like prior to the acquisition from INAP.
1: Sure. So, um, you know, I came in a single hop uh, probably about two and a half years prior to that. So, um, you know, when I walked in a single hop, and when I was talking to Zach and and, and Mark Cravata at the time, who who ran uh, sales and inside sales at the time, um, the the company was going through the transformation. So, uh, single hop had already been um, in in place uh, for about five years at that point, and you know Zach Boca, who who the CEO um, and, and founder, really had foresight to say, okay. I have a really good business today, but this business isn't at where it is today. It needs to elevate and, and move up market. And part of part of that moving up market was having um, the right team to, to move that. So part of it is having the right talent and right team. Um, and also then also having a product set that um, you can sell to customers. So, you know, there was some foundational pieces Um, that were already in place. Um, You know, I'll call it great support methodology, um, uh, a real attention to customer service. Um, You know, there was already levels of automation that I hadn't seen from. And when I walked in the single hop, it was the scale was impressive. Um, You know, if you look at just footprint wise from a a company that you probably never even heard of, you know, and I, I had some familiarity, but my perception was different than what, what the reality was. And coming in, it, it was all about moving up market. And part of that was how do we, t- you know, transform our sellers to sell differently? And going from a very transactional, um, reactive uh, type of selling mode um, with, I'll call it some complexity, to a very solutions based, um, problem-solving approach to selling to customers. And, you know, by going up market from, I'll call it SMB to mid-enterprise, that's a pretty big jump for an organization. And, and in the first, you know, year and a half of my career career there was uh, uh, me flying around the country, basically transforming sales teams and transforming our customer base, talking to different customers and writing pre-sales methodologies and teaching everybody how to sell just to get us to where we were, you know, the the five years after, five and a half years after they got us to the acquisition. But I think the key there was, there was the willingness to change and That, and I saw that from the top. Um, it was uncomfortable, I think, you know, sometimes as we're changing because you don't always see the results immediately and it's a little bit long road, but I looked at it was, Um, It was a great challenge for me, Um, you know, career-wise. I was looking for something different. I came from the VAR space, so I was already uh, acclimated to solution selling and had run some sales there, had run engineering teams, had built out practices. So the technologies were familiar to me, but the deliveries were different. Um, And the scale of it, and I, I knew I had all the piece parts to start putting together good reference architectures add maybe some products that, you know, were gaps and, and have influence and input. That was the key thing for me when I, when I came in uh, and that, you know, got us to where we were, our, I would, I would also say where we are today.
0: So what, there's an interesting um, conundrum here that I've found for similar types of companies that were in that transitionary space that you, that you talked about way back when, um, which was all of like 2014, let's just say 2013, 2014, Um, there's, there's companies who are owned and run by engineers who want to make a switch and want to figure out how they can scale their business, but are extremely reticent to the sales process and salespeople in general, you know, and probably rightfully so, because there's a lot of salespeople out there that just rub clients the wrong way and are very aggressive and may not even know the solutions that they're selling. But what, what is that? Uh, tool or, or I don't want to say tool, but the, what is that piece that's missing uh, for these organizations that helps them transition their business from, you know, that, you know, probably three to six million in revenue and really can't get past that line because they're really struggling with figuring out how to scale their sales. Uh, the owners tend to be the ones that sell most of the deals because they, they know the engineering extremely well and they really just don't trust salespeople. I mean, I've can't even tell you how many times I've heard this story over and over again across the country, but, um, what, what's, what are your thoughts on that?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, that's a great question. And I think, um, you know, from my experience is, um, I think there were already there, I'll call it, there was already uh, some previous iterations uh, of sales that had happened that maybe, um, to your point, the lack of trust around sales or the lack of believing, um, you know, you just can't hire any sales team or any sales leaders to, to get it done. Um, I think the big thing, you know, that I think worked for us in, in that transformation was, um, open communication. I think, um, in, in, in trust. I think often a lot of sales leaders, they come in, um, they, you know, they're, you know, um, you know, they have a te- more technical team than, um, then, you know, then then they're more focused on the technology vision and those types of things. And um, the sales leaders don't necessarily give the level of transparency from a sales process perspective um, to, to, for, to the executive team um, to do that. I think the other piece that I think is important is um, I think most sales leaders come in, um, you know, often and have their own playbook right and they think that playbook that they worked at the other three uh, companies um, is going to work for the company that um that you know they're working for today and um, sometimes it works sometimes it doesn't i'd say more often than not you you have to have adaptability but i think it's and then also i think getting the the c-level team out and talking to customers often um you know the c-level team and the executive team they're so focused on the business, right? Growing that business that they're not talking to new like prospects, like bringing the the C-level team early into a deal to see what the customers are saying, I think is a big part of that that gives visibility. And, you know, I think it's kind of that vicious cycle that they don't necessarily believe the, the sales team necessarily, um, because they think they're providing the right things. And I think that's worked real well. You know, I, I was fortunate that Zach, um, you know, um, he's you know, when we started to really kind of transform into a, a mid market company, um, he was, a he listened and he would challenge us. Um, you know, uh, as frustrating as at times we would go out on some, you know, exploratory roles and then get to the, the outcome that we, we originally wanted anyways. But, um, you know, I think the communication uh, definitely helped there. And then, you know, being open to change, I think, um, because it is uncomfortable. It, it's, it's that person's money. At the end of the day, uh, they're, you know, financial income. So they're, they're playing cards with their own money.
0: Yep. Yeah, I know that. Uh, I know that very well. <laughs> and I've learned some hard lessons over the years as to who to hire. Um, and the one of the mistakes I see, Uh, those companies making is hiring successful salespeople who have been at larger organizations like a a Microsoft or an AWS or an Oracle who have traditionally sold into uh, large accounts. And they think that because they know how to sell into large accounts, they'll be able to sell the services uh, that they offer into those large accounts. But the The thing that they forget, and I think a lot of salespeople even forget, is that working for a Microsoft and an Oracle and an Amazon or or, or whoever, you already have a lot of barriers broken down for you to have that conversation. People will be open to wanting to talk to companies at that size because of the brand recognition that already exists and the services at the breadth of services and the scope of services. But someone like a single hop, right? You guys were one of a few players in the market, and you, were, uh, you weren't the only game in town. You didn't have a, a massive marketing budget, and yet you guys were able to be successful in and around the Chicagoland area initially and then grew well beyond the Chicagoland area. The, uh, what, what were some of the key things that you think led to that success?
1: Well, I I think it, you know, and I think you hit on a a good point. I think the brand piece uh, is always one of the toughest, right? Um, And I think, you know, getting into it was hiring the right people, I think is key, a key part of that, because you you can't come into it thinking you're not going to get your hands dirty. And the reality is you get your hands really dirty. um, And and it's part of that. Um, I remember my first 12 months, I, flew around the country um, just, you know, selling and um, trying to make things happen. And part of that conversation was, you know, the, one of the first conversations I'd ask customers, you know who Single hop is? And they'd say, no. I said, of course you don't. And, you know, and then really, I think having something different, but then showing up professional and authentic to a customer, especially the types of services that we sold around, managed services because yeah you're selling a technology and i think everybody gets wound up of hey everybody's got servers everybody's got storage all those things but at the end of the day you're selling a relationship because in managed services you're you're going into uh you're, you're not dating once you kind of sign that contract you're married for a period of time um and it's on us you know like any good relationship to make sure that the communication is good, how we give customers visibility, um, the transparency that the customers have. And then I think just access to people. Um, a lot of companies don't wanna work with the big you know, Microsofts and Azures and, and things like that, you know, Azure and AWS and all those, you know, and the big brands sometimes, because there's a, uh, I'll call it a loss of intimacy and openness and, and access to people um, that they don't necessarily get, but you're auditioning every day, uh, you know, for, for a role, uh, in a very competitive market. And if you don't differentiate just in how you, you know, send the company message and what you're about, I think is a big, you know, a big part of that kind of, I'll call it going up market, going to an uncomfortable place and not having a, uh, I'll call it a windfall of a brand behind you.
0: So. We've spent, as you mentioned earlier on, uh, a lot of time late night uh, over Hmm. multiple uh, concoctions uh, talking about the industry and how it's evolved over time and where it's going and and whatnot. Uh, And one of those pieces of the puzzle uh, has to do, I guess one of the many conversations we've had had to do with the the transition of INAP or or single hop into INAP. Uh, Can you talk about how and why that acquisition occurred. Um, You know, when, to to be totally blunt, uh, InterNAP, you know, formerly InterNAP, I've known for, yeah, since I started in the industry, because they had a large presence in the Bay Area, where I was at the time. And they were originally selling, you know, managed network services. Then they got into co-location services and managed hosting services uh, and have been kind of playing around with those different tool sets. And then they picked up um uh, they got behind OpenStack pretty heavily back in the day, kind of like Rackspace did and put all their chips into the OpenStack bucket. Um and when I heard that INEP was or Internet was going to be acquiring SingleHop, I gotta be honest, I was a little uh bummed out because I knew the people at Single Hop. Uh, you know, I knew you, I knew Mark Mercado, I knew a handful of the other folks there. You had a great organization going. You had a solid team, you were very proactive, you knew exactly what you were trying to accomplish. And when those organizations tend to get acquired by publicly traded companies, there's never n- it is frequently the case that not good things happen, uh, and that the brain drain occurs. Right, the, the smart people from the company that just got acquired end up leaving uh, the organization. And I can I can say I have not seen that happen uh, for for and through that acquisition. Can you kind of speak to why? What you've seen in that process and why you've decided to stay uh, at INAP through the process?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think um, if you look at it on a surface level, you go big companies buying small company, right? And or smaller company. And, um, you know, on the surface, you know, everybody goes and goes, oh, boy. Here goes another a larger company buying a smaller company. They're going to erode it. They're just there for the customers. And the reality is is that um Internap who then rebranded to iNap, um which by the way just as yourself, um I was familiar with Internap um because I was a uh 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 customer which is now Miro. Uh, customer back in 2000. So I was familiar, uh, you know, with, with the company and how it's evolved over the years. And I think, um, INAP, you know, prior to the acquisition was at a, a little bit of a, I'll call it a, a, re- a rebirth or, um, kind of restructure of who, who, who they wanted to be, right? Um, you take a, a legacy company that has picked up, um, you know, Great network services, like you mentioned, uh, a number of you know data center footprints through acquisition and some build out of of uh, bare metal and, and private cloud and or managed custom hosting at, at, you know w- with what they would call it. Um, you know so the acquisition of single hop was a lot about um, a lot about just kind of rounding out a portfolio of who they're targeting uh and, and then also some of that, that automation and proprietary automation that we uh, we had at single hop some of the visibility tools that we were using um as part of it i often refer to it it looks a lot from my perspective it looks a lot like a merger than an acquisition because that's how i feel um of course it's an acquisition you know in the financial sense but to your point we didn't have a mass exodus of people um, we, we were able to retain, time, uh, you know, retain uh, people. A lot of uh, the executives at, at Single Hop still have VP or executive roles um, at INAP. So that's why I call it a little bit more of a merger from, I'll call it a, a cultural and, and structural perspective. And then the technology roadmap, a lot of that technology roadmap is what we have today is influenced by the Single Hop. Uh, engine and, and platform. So y- now you get to a point where we've coupled, you know, large scale in uh, data centers and footprint, uh, a network that we can connect everything, and then you have the customer service, the automation, the tools, and you know the the engine um, to deliver and solve problems for customers, uh, which I think gets us today. What gets me excited about that is kind of the latter, the last thing I said is I have an opportunity and, you know, with any acquisition, you have an opportunity. You can, you can leave either buy in, you don't. And I got back to my roots in engineering. Um, You know, at single hop, I ran sales, I ran pre-sales engineering, I ran enterprise sales engineering, and then also customer onboarding. So I was responsible for a lot of things, but what, you know, you have a choice. And I said, I have an opportunity. I think we're going to go through a tremendous transformation of, Having mentor salespeople, mentoring engineers, um, defining and shaping the, the vision of the, uh, of the company, the new company, INAP. And, uh, I got excited about that. And, um, and that's why I chose to stay. And I'm still excited about that because it, you know, we're now, I'll call it getting out of the, um, you know, integration mode. And now we're back to doing, I'll call it really cool things.
0: That's a perfect transition, I think, to the next piece that I want to cover, which is the what, what we're calling the multi-cloud story, right? Um, and what is required for organizations to work across multiple uh, hyperscale mm-hmm. environments and applications that might live on-prem in their office or inside of a data center and or inside Azure or Office 365, Um let's let's kind of kick that piece of the the conversation off here and talk through what you know what is multi cloud as you understand it and define it um, and how the game has changed you know recently I would say with the different interconnection platforms available um, that make that far easier to accomplish than than ever before for customers Um and let's, let's just kick that off. So what does multi-cloud mean to you? And how how is that solution and, and product set for customers shaping out? So
1: multi-cloud to me is uh, a customer consuming any number of delivery services to deliver an application. Um, it could be, you know, the, and there's buckets of that. So, you know, in the simplest forms, there, there's SaaS. And I think, you know, customers are trying to push as much SaaS um out as they can i mean how many companies run their own crm internally very few um so that's going to always be an aspect of it but then i think you start getting down to i'll call it traditional business applications that either drive revenue for the company um or do something you know um internally that you know um, whether it's financial reporting or, or, or whatever that may be, or a supply chain that they need to, to host in some some fashion, I think of you know co-location as part of that that uh, cl- you know multi cloud strategy because there's just still a component to that. Um, so I think you know where customers are going and where they want to go is they want the flexibility to be able to put applications um, in the right bucket. And regardless of what that bucket is, and the, and the criteria could be a number of different things. How often it runs, what the use case is, who they're delivering it to, um, it, you know, security, any number of those things. And some of it is just comfort in a lot of cases. I'm just not comfortable putting it there, so I need to put it somewhere else. I think the, the thing that doesn't get talked about enough when we go to have that multi-cloud strategy is, A, do I want to have five, six vendors that I want to work with? Um, And then also does my time, although I think I might be getting back time, am I getting time back by managing all these vendors, especially by when I have a problem? I think the second piece that gets lost in this is um, the visibility into all these environments and each environment takes its own skill set, its own tools, and um, you lose a little level of visibility and I'll call it um, internal compliance on managing, backing up, all of those things and just monitoring performance in general. So and then I think the third thing is connectivity kind of gets lost in it um, because now you got to connect a lot of dots Um, and are you connecting the dots correctly? Are you connecting them uh, in a fault-tolerant manner. Um, so I think, you know, as we evolve into the multi-cloud and customers want to consume it based on a dollar and, you know, um, uh, an application profile, and it all sounds great, um, it kind of paralyzes customers a little bit too because they just, A, can't consume it, and B, don't know where to put it yet.
0: Yeah, so that that hits on the next question that I wanted to ask you is, you know, working with all these different environments does seem daunting and, and crazy complicated uh, and almost, you know, impossible. So what can we try to humanize this multi-cloud phraseology that we're using and provide a case study for our listeners of a company that is successfully using multiple environments and, you know, exactly how that plays out uh, from a uh, an application deployment and management perspective?
1: Yeah, so I mean, if you look at um, you know, INAP is big into the gaming industry for for a number and uh, a number of of reasons. And um, if you look at just in general um, how those how their customers, I mean, think about their customers. They're your kids at home, and what are they? What does your kid at home yell about when they can't connect to Fortnite or or Smite or? or, you know, any, or, you know, Realm Royale or whatever game they're playing, they they can't connect and they can't, um, you know, or lag, right? So what we see, you know, from a lot of customers is, you know, especially in gaming, is they're using two or three providers. um, And, you know, some of those providers are, uh, you know, usually a, a hyperscaler. And the reason being is think about, how unpredictable game usage is, um, and, and and also performance of that game usage. So, um, they use these multiple clouds because, you know, um, we're getting ready to go on Christmas break, and I'll use round numbers. Uh, you might have a hundred bare metal servers with INAP and um, you know you have a direct connection to AWS, and then you have a direct connection to Azure. Um, and it's christmas break kids are out of school and guess what kids go go do in the winter in chicago they don't go outside because it's getting ready to snow and it's cold so they're jumping on their xbox their ps4 the computer whatever and they're going to go play video games and they're going to go play video games with their friends online uh, my son talks to the, his friends half the time, not even over the phone, they talking over Xbox live. So it, it's kind of crazy. And I, I'm, I often wonder who he's yelling at, but I've, I've kind of figured it out. So I'm not have such a big generational gap, but um, let's say, you know, 10,000 users come on, a provider like us can't deliver in minutes, but um, you know, Amazon and Azure can, but the reality is, okay, we have a spike at Christmas break. And then, you know what, over time that spike kind of delivers, but there's a new bar that gets added. Often what our, provi- our our customers will do is say, okay, I'm spending this in Amazon. This is my new self-sustained, um, you, know, in, you know, self-sustained kind of baseline for infrastructure. I'm now going to move that down to an INAP bare metal platform because it's more cost-effective because now this does run 24 by 7. I get better latency performance to my end users and I get better guaranteed performance and a better price per performance on bare metal versus, uh, you know, an an EC2 instance on AWS or, you know, a spot instance or whatever that might be.
0: Let's let's geek out on that right there. How does that migration happen uh, from a, you know, Azure or AWS or whichever environment, uh, you know, monthly recurring, flexible workload? How, how does one move those apps in that, in that environment from the cloud into that bare metal environment? Like, what is well, that? I, I
1: think, yeah, I mean, that's a great question because I think, you know, everybody thinks that just going to Amazon Azure is like this easy move getting in there. And, you know, often my team is asking, you know, what application do you run and does it carry data and how does it operate? Can it be spun up, spun down or moved easily? Um, if you look at a lot of how, so application architecture in how the applications are built is very important because in order to move like that kind of back and forth, it's kind of like just, it, you're just shooting the server. There's no data resident on that. What happens is, is there, all those applications are stateless for, for all intents and purposes. All the important data that, you know, whether it's user information, login information, uh, save profiles is typically stored somewhere where it's not going to be moved around it's always needs to be on it's stagnant so it's already kind of sitting in there the stuff that goes out to the you know in a lot of the use cases we see they're they're kind of disposable instances um, because they can do auto scaling they can do you know um, if if a server is performing poorly and it, or they're in the wrong region and they unbalance the regions, um, you can kind of shoot those things and you, there's no downfall and there's no um, user experience issue as part of that. It's not like, a, you know, i call it a brick-and-mortar manufacturing company that has, a, you know, an enterprise database and a couple kind of stagnant web servers that, you know, all their their users are logging into. Uh, that you can just go move those around and there's really no business value to that. So um, that's a lot of the things we see is, you know, stateless applications, great. Um, Things that, you know, have no data resident on them um, is also, uh, you know, great use cases.
0: So what, what tools does INAP have for the customer to be able to view and manage those workloads that may be sitting in different, different locations?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, for us, um, you know, we have some, some, uh, you know, managed services around AWS, Azure, uh, and then, you know, our, our platforms as well, that give you visibility into that. So where's your workload live? um, You know, uh, our managed AWS service and Azure service, um, you know, what are you spending where, where your, um, where, you know, what, what systems are dormant or not being utilized? And then, you know, a lot of what we do from a managed services perspective is, Mr. Customer, you have this instance up in Azure uh, or AWS, you're not using it anymore. Um, do you want to keep it there or is it just a legacy app that, you know, a legacy server that never got used? Server sprawl is a big problem just because it's so easy to take on those services. Um, and most customers don't have the visibility. Think about it. They spin up an instance, they get distracted, they forget about it. And then it's just, they're getting billed. So, you know, a lot of what we do for customers, I think there's a human aspect to it. Um, but then there's a, also a tooling aspect from a visibility perspective and a, a lot of our kind of platform management goes into that from our in blue platform and in our intelligent monitoring platform of giving more visibility to the customers. Um, yeah, from that perspective
0: And from a cloud perspective in, in which clouds are you playing with do you have APIs built into where you can view those workloads and I guess that's where I'm going so rapid yeah. scale, for example was one of the those panes of glass that you could have visibility into multiple environments do you, do you have your own version of that and um, how does that actually operate for customers?
1: So it's tied to our services. So if we're, if we're managing an environment for a customer, whether it's an INAP cloud environment or a a hyperscaler and the two hyperscalers that we work with are are Amazon and Azure uh, today. Um, And, you know, by doing that, it's under the premise that you're an INAP customer and you're, uh, you're able to, um, you know, you're you're giving us management. And then, you know, a big part of that is, is just understanding where the workloads live. Um, as simple as inventory management. I mean, think about when a customer goes multi-cloud. You got Amazon. You got Azure. You may have INAP. You may have some software. You, you might, you know, you might have a, a a private cloud that sits in one of your data centers. Just from an administrator, as as easy as cloud is, if I look at kind of all the tools I would have, like, you know, kind of rewind my career 15 years ago, and if I were able to live in this world and the type of architectures I could build, like, the sky's the limit. However, um, keeping track of all that um, becomes a pretty daunting task uh, from that perspective. So just inventory management. Think about just patch management. You know, now you gotta patch servers in AWS, you gotta patch them in Azure, you gotta patch them in INAP. Um, giving tools around just patch management in general and managed services and then also I call it connecting the dots and being able to troubleshoot things from a single provider is you know something that I we feel pretty strongly about.
0: Gotcha. And the the level of services that you offer around managed Uh, AWS and managed Azure, I think that's important because very few organizations these days actually offer that in-house. Is that something that INEP, do you have your own credentials and team that's focused on providing that managed environment or is that outsourced to a third party?
1: So none of our support is outsourced. So we we strongly believe in building teams internally. Um, We're very thoughtful about um, service offerings. Um, you know, we get approached to support all kinds of different things and you buy our customers, um, buy vendors, all of those things. So, um, we take a very, i call it, uh, kind of intentional approach to what we do. Um, in, you know, a lot of it is based on customers and I would say we're more multi-cloud focused in that aspect. Um, and the reason being is that, you can have a technician or a team of technicians that have expertise in AWS, but then also a dedicated, you know, managed hosted private cloud with iNAP. Um, and being able to troubleshoot what's going on in the AWS side, as well as, you know, the network, all the way from the network to the end destination in an iNAP data center, I think is is one of our advantages. I think there's a lot of providers that, um, can we'll go out and say, we just do manage AWS or we do manage Azure and it's a separate team and, and those things. We're, we're designing things to, to really kind of align with that customer's transformation and journey um, as they go. So if you look at how our platform, or I'll call it our engine, you know, how INAP is structured, it's built that, you know, a customer can start in co-location and end up in, in, you know, a hyperscaler. But the reality is along the way, I like to use the term they leave some luggage along the way that they never really leave co-location fully. They're going to consume some sort of private cloud or bare metal in some fashion. And then they're going to leverage that AWS or, or Azure in some fashion as well. But along the way, and whether it's, you know, porting revenue between co-location in our private cloud or, uh, you know, co-location and DR as a service, Um, we allow them to, we give them mechanisms to do that. We also give them mechanisms to make it easy for them to consume as well. So anything that's through tools, it's through revenue models, it's through, you know, all connectivity, I think is a big part of it that I think, you know, as we mentioned, gets lost in this whole, whole game. Um, being able to offer that full suite is a a very important
0: part of that. The The other key piece that we haven't touched on that we should is the, the network piece, right? So what is going on in the networking world that's allowed uh, for these multi-cloud environments to be far more seamless and easier to execute than, than before?
1: So, I mean, there's a lot, right? So, um, I mean, connectivity um, is a big part of it. Um, I think, you know, making it easier for customers to consume. Think about how complex these things are. So, and what, a, and, and I think this is important for the, you know, the, the resellers as well as yes, there's a lot of connecting the dots, but there, there's a, there's an aspect of this is, um, if you look at every co RFP today, one of the first co-location questions or it's in the top 10, um, is do you connect to Amazon or Azure and Google? It, it's just like a barrier to entry today, um, but I think the the other important thing is is that um, you know in, in our strategy is we have we have a global backbone that we can connect any one of our data centers to the hyperscaler. Um, we can also connect it to any one of our cloud pops, or we can connect uh, you know for, to, from data center to data center and creating these rings and then fiber backbone to be able to do that. Um, you know, as part of that. If we don't do that, the customer has to go do that on their own. That's not giving customers time back. That's not making it easier for them to consume. So, and there's a lot of gotchas in these architectures. You know, you only see what you can see. We can see our network and we can do things to enable that, that I think, you know, I think reduce risk for customers as well as make it just really easy to consume.
0: that's, I think, the conversations I've had in the last few podcasts uh, with Christian at at Packet Fabric and Aaron Hughes over at 6Connect. And it's all about how the network utilization and network services are now mirroring the cloud utilization and cloud services in that they are on demand, monthly recurring, you know, pay for it as you need it, spin it up, spin it down. Um, and I'm sure you're seeing this somewhat frequently. And I'm, I'm curious what INAP's multi-cloud stri- or, or uh, interconnection strategy is. Uh, you know, are you, do you have you know, a white-labeled version of Megaport like Digital Realty has? Or do you have your own version? Or um, are you just giving uh, providing clients access to different interconnection platforms? Like, what does that look like?
1: So it's a combination of a few things. So we're, we're, we partner with Megaport definitely. Um, You know, it's one of those technologies that to your point, speed of delivery and and being able to do that. Um, We partner with a few other folks as well um, around being able to connect to the hyperscale clouds. I mean, I think what we see more of, I mean, definitely that that is uh, the advantages is is, um, being able to backhaul data from you know, one of our data centers to another um, and then being able to route that traffic and being able to spin that up quickly as well. Uh, You know, because to your point, when you need to make a change in the network, the change is likely driven by something that's being done in the business or a growth effort. And it's typically a lot of cases from a customer's perspective, somewhat reactive. Um, so, because we all know IT isn't always, always in the know on, on new business development type of activities. They're, you know, whether it's an acquisition, whether it's, um, you know, expansion or something that sales is doing that's going to drive, you know, new sales. So, um, IT is typically reacting to their business. Um, and, you know, as a provider, we have to react to them. So I think that's part of it. And I think the other thing that we've seen just in the network, Perspective, And this is why we're, you know, we've, we've had such success in gaming and I'll call it customers that have end user customers that you don't have control over, whether, you know, customers sitting in their house um, or, you know, you know, access to eyeballs is, is where the company started. And that's our, our performance IP product that we layer on top of all of our data center services where we're just delivering lower latency to to an end user which then, you know, for a gaming customer, back to that case study is, it's just driving lower latency, a better user experience and quicker response times. Um, I like to refer to it as BGP on steroids, um, just from that perspective. Um, and, you know, that's a lot of what we see where the network drives the the value for us. It's the interconnectivity, but then it's also just inherently when you host with iNAP, you get uh, a performance reduction uh, you know, in, in lower latency, around user customers.
0: Awesome. And the the other conversation that I know we want to get into is managed services and what managed services meant, you know, back ten years ago, versus what managed services means today and customers' expectations around it, and even providers' ability to deliver it. Um, you know what what has that looked like on your end coming from the, you know, the client side of the house over to the service provider side of the house and, and what you've seen capabilities uh, and, and offerings evolve?
1: Yeah. I mean, I mean, you think about, you know, 10, 15, even 15 years ago, uh, you had this wave of managed services, which everybody called outsourcing. Right. And um, you know, outsourcing, it was somewhat of a swear word, but, you know, if you think about how those deals were, were sold, it was, you were talking to, you know, the executive level, you weren't interacting with it and they think this is a reflection of the times where it wasn't necessarily driving revenue for the company. And they would say, Hey, we can give you, we can do these managed services. We can take all these things off your plate and um, we can reduce your staff by X. Um, the reality of where, you know, kind of fast forward to those conversations today, those conversations aren't about staff reduction. Um, it's more about giving time back and, um, you know, customer, you know, companies learned around the time I made the transition from being a customer to, um, you know, being a a consultant and helping customers is they could do more with less, um, so they, they, they are very watchful in what they spend on IT. They're very watchful for what they, you know, what they spend on, uh, you know, people. They make very conscious decisions about who they hire and, um, you know, how many people they hire. But the challenge with that is, is that those people that are getting hired or in IT roles, they can't keep up. They can barely c- keep the lights on and they're not often IT is, is, slowing the company down because you know what, they have 10, IT has 10 projects on their, their board, but the reality is 60% of their time is spent on break, fix, backups, um, patching, uh, you know, not deploying new applications, not driving line of business. Um, so managed services today is more about how do you give time back? And then, when you're talking to the that it director the vp of infrastructure or the guy that is managing it today he looks at and goes wait a minute i'm going to lose all kinds of control, um or am i um and am i also going to lose you know flexibility in my job am i going to lose visibility can i bring my own tools if i have them so a lot of it is about supplying tools that give customers uh high levels of visibility in their environment giving them the access they have um to, so that they just feel comfortable that um you know what they're using how they're using it and they have the ability to you know they're not going to lose control and all they're going to interact with is a ticketing system so you know being able to be transparent is part of that and giving you know full tra- you know as much transparency to protect themselves but then also make them feel comfortable i think is a big part of managed services because if you look at managed services you know over the years and Every provider struggles with this. Is just trust us that we're going to do our job, and then you know often it's very reactive, um, it's very inconsistent, um, and you know a big part of what we try to do is give a ton of visibility through our tools, our intelligent monitoring tools. An example of that where the customer has full visibility into their environment. They see performance. They see services that are running on each individual system and they also but then you know that's great um and they see all their logs and all those things but then when there's an uh an incident the incident is generates an action item or you know or you know from from that perspective and an action item is really uh something that broke or something that needs to be investigated and then they know exactly who the technician is and that technician is logging into that case and they're able to see okay high cpu here are the seven steps I for troubleshooting that I need to do. So then the customer can log into the portal. They can see exactly who's working on it, what step they're working on, and if they need to communicate with the the end user or with the, the technician on the other end, they don't have to go into another portal, another ticketing system to do that. They can do that right in that alert. So I think making it easy and making the transparency, I mean, think about how people consume life today. I mean, I don't order Domino's pizza because I live in Chicago and it's probably the best pizza in the world. But if you order Domino's pizza, you have more visibility into where your pizza is, whether it's in the oven, who's, who's putting it in the oven, how long it's going to take if it's in the truck. So you can almost predict or know that the guy is pulling up into your driveway. Why should managed services be less technical than your pizza company?
0: For those who are listening, I'm going to repeat because it's so flipping important um, is that managed services today is not about staff reduction. So if you're going in and you're selling staff reduction and cost savings from that perspective, you're probably going to be turning off the people that you're talking to. It's about giving time back. Right. That is so, so paramount and so key. And uh, I've, I've seen it happen over and over again where the partners that we play with and work with are coming in trying to sell cost savings when that that's not truly the um, MO of the, let's say the CTO, the CIO, the COO, the director of IT. They have their budget, the budget's allocated. They don't really want a budget reduction. In a lot of cases, they want their budgets to go up. But if you can tell them that you can give them time back and you can give them even money back to go spend on... Um, let's say security, which is becoming far more important and far more costly as a result, um, that's, that's a story that sells. And that's a story that is valuable and practical for organizations.
1: No, I couldn't agree more. I mean, and I think the security piece, you know, I think to your point, and security is one example of that is, it allows customers to think about other things. And now that you've given them the time back to focus on, Something that protects the business, drives the business, whatever that may be. Yeah.
0: So the, the last piece of the puzzle that I'd love to dig into with you, which I know we've probably spent way too many hours uh, speaking about, is who, like, who in the marketplace – because you've been supporting the channel side of the house for a very long time – um, and I 'm curious, when you look out into the marketplace, you know you work mm-hmm. with the different master agents, you work with all kinds of different partners all over the country, how have you seen that marketplace evolve, and who do you see is successful today
1: yeah and I, I think it's um, it's like anything mean we talked about evolution and managed services it 's an evolution in the channel as well, and I, I think there's um, it's important. As this evolution or trans, uh, transformations happening in our in our industry, and how we used to sell 15 years ago can't be the same way we sell today. And um, I think there, you know, inherently, there's just a you know, for from the the channel partner side, there's a little bit of a lack of trust and a loss of control. No different from the customer perspective. There's also a little bit of discomfort, so people aren't necessarily having conversations about. Things that they don't know and they're afraid to pre- bring vendors into the deal because A, their reputation's on the line, uh, you know, B, they, you know, they just don't want to get outside their comfort zone. So, um, you know, what I've seen the most successful partners kind of doing is they're leveraging their connections, they're picking certain partners or vendor partners that they trust. And they're really truly partnering. So they, they kind of filter out through the masters, you know who you know for so the type of customer base that I have, who is who are the people that I should be working with. I think the ones that do it really well, and I think um, are the ones that are very solutions focused. They're asking about lines of business. They're asking about the applications, and they're getting enough information to do a good enough handoff to. I mean, effectively, you know, our team and you know, we go in and then we're selling together, I think is the most successful. Um, I think, um, you know, it's very difficult in this day and age, especially around cloud to say, just go get me a quote on a private cloud. First of all, customers don't go out and seek, they don't go do search web searches. They don't go and say, Hey, I go, I need, I need a, a dedicated private cloud. They just don't, they don't do that. Um, they go and say, I have a business problem that I need to solve. It's likely complex. Um, or, I'm trying to pick something up and move it off premise, and I got to go to the cloud, or I want to go to the cloud, but I don't even know what that is. So, the level of consultation that needs to happen in order to get there is a lot more different but strategic. And it's, at the end of the day, as a channel part, you know, channel agent, you're going to sell wider into your customer, and you're going to see lines of business and talk to people that you've never talked to. Because guess what the network guy that you talk to on the other end is probably doesn't have a ton of influence on the line of business anymore. And, um, and I think that, you know, that's kind of where the shift is, is that it's become even more importantly, um, solutions based the VARs, you know, the, I'll call it, uh, the systems integrators do a great job of this because that's where they were born Um They're just changing the delivery model. Leverage your relationships and find the right people, but then bring the right people in on the back end and build relationships there that you you know and trust.
0: So, if you are a uh, consultant who's been working in the industry for the last five, ten years, and you've been selling those network services, like what what do you need to do at this point? And you know, can you become an expert in all things cloud and colo? you know, overnight and just start speaking that language or how, how does one go about picking up that expertise to have those conversations? With the yeah. I mean, and
1: you're not, you're never going to become an expert. I mean, in anything, you know, and I hate that. It's not like I want to say anything, but the reality is is that these things are so complex. Every deal has network in it. Every deal has compute in it. Some deals have co-location in some aspects of it. Um, but, you're not going to, you're not going to be an expert in backup, DR, all of those things. So I, I think, you know, the key is, is being able to listen for the opportunities and understand who you need to be talking to. So you need to, you know, make lateral moves in your relationships and get those introductions, but then build a brand for yourself um, backed by, you know, your master agents or, or whoever you work with or your book of vendors to say, okay, What do my customer base look like? What are the potential services I can sell to them? And then start to kind of put in your back-end portfolio and almost rebrand that back-end portfolio um, as your company. And then it's, hey, I'm going to bring one of my engineers in. Now, that engineer doesn't work for you. But I got an engineer over at INAP that, you know, and and the team over at INAP, they're experts in this area because I think it's worth the conversation for that. And they do all the things. I've worked with them on the network side, but they offer cloud or colo or whatever. And it sounds like you have an opportunity for that. But here's the value I bring, Mr. Customer, to you is I can get you in touch with the right people that solve your business problems, and you don't have to go seek it out on your own. It's A lot of it's like matchmaking at the end of the day is, you know, how do I find people who are compatible with me based on the things that you're looking for?
0: Can't agree more, my friend. And I know this is a, a drumbeat that I think I've had on the on the podcast uh, for since I started this thing. But it's it's good, I think, for those listening to hear it coming, not just from me, but from from people such as yourself who have been on the client side and who are on the provider side now. Uh, working with hundreds of these partners across the country, across all the different master agents, as to who's being successful and who's not. I do have some final questions that I'd love to throw your way. What is something that you've experienced or seen or witnessed in the last uh, few months that has truly blown your mind um, from a technology perspective?
1: Um, I don't know if it's bl- bl- blowing my mind, but I, it's more of a realization that it, it's definitely becoming more prominent, um, and it's starting to become real. Is the the usage of containers? Um, I'm having more conversations around containerization that I think sets us up for a future phase um, that um, is starting to become, you know, really prominent. Um, so I think, you know, from that perspective. Um, I look at kind of the evolutions and the cycles of, of technology. I think that is going to, containers isn't the cycle, but it's going to drive a different behavior for how companies develop applications, how they support them, how they deliver them. So I think that's kind of one of those things that I'm spending a lot of my time kind of, you know, I look at kind of new challenges and what I can learn about and get really deep into that's I think one area where, um, you know, I'm spending a lot of my kind of personal time just, trying to figure out and how does it play and what's important for a customer. I mean, what I'm seeing is a lot, most folks are using Kubernetes, you know, most of my conversations are Kubernetes focus folks, you know, kind of from that perspective, I think, you know, um, we see it a lot because a lot of our customers leverage bare metal uh, and Kubernetes together. And then they also have, you know, some other deployment somewhere else. Um, so, you know, I think from that perspective, that's the technology I'm seeing. Um, there's a ton of tools around it um, that, that are, you know, that I think it just, it goes into customers are really starting to get more automated as they go. They are now starting to think hands off. They're thinking, oh, if I do a, a task, how can I do it, you know, the least amount of times and how can I automate it? Much like how we would think about it, but... We're seeing more and more customers. One of the first questions they ask us is, "Do you have available APIs?"
0: Yep. Yeah. The uh, the automation piece was actually one of the underlying themes for my last uh, podcast that I, I did with Aaron Hughes, because um, he's been uh, on the forefront of automation, and the man can't do a single thing without thinking of himself. How do I automate this so I don't have to do it again? Um, yep. So the uh, the another question I have for you is. As it relates to myth busting, and over the years, like what is something that you hear repeatedly that you're like, no, that's that's definitely not true. Why, why do people keep repeating this myth about our about our industry or in, in the space that we're in?
1: So myth busting, I, I was wondering if you just wanted to discuss like the JFK like assassination or <laughs> you know those kind of things, but
0: that's um, for a different podcast at a different
1: time. <laughs> okay, got it. Um, so uh, technical myth busting, I think the, the myth busting that um, every application can go into AWS and AWS or and I don't want to pick on AWS solely, but AWS and Azure are cheaper than doing it with, with somebody else or, you know, or if that's the only way to do it. I think that is kind of one of those myths is like, I got to put everything in um i think that's where customers get themselves in some some trouble as well um you know uh we've seen it we've seen retractions as well but i think that's kind of one of those myths is that you just can throw it up there and it's you know it's just going to work and i'm going to do it as well as i did it on premise um it's it's easy it's easy to spin up it's not easy to architect and architect properly
0: yeah, and manage and optimize. Yep. You know, yeah, that, that expertise. Definitely have to gain a lot of mind sharing experience to have that expertise. And I think it's where a lot of people expect once it's in Amazon, it'll just self-manage, self, self, manage its, its <laughs> self manage, which is far from the, far from the truth. Um, that's a good one. I appreciate that one. Um, the last question I have for you, Josh, my friend, is do you love data centers?
1: I love data centers. I've been doing data centers for... 21 years, I'm, I'm almost ashamed to say that I've been working for 21 years at this point. Um, I love data centers.
0: Awesome. Thank you, brother. I, uh, I appreciate that, and I too am feeling pretty old these days. As the, <laughs> to my son too, screaming at the TV as he's playing Fortnite, and I'm like, who the hell are you yelling at? <laughs> what is going on? And I want to say this before I drop off. For those of you who have kids who are playing Fortnite and who watch uh, you know, Twitch, right? And these videos of other people playing video games. I don't know if you've experienced this, but watching other people play video games where they're giving like a, every single thought that goes through their head, they're speaking and voicing. And then watching my son do the same thing when he's playing drives me absolutely crazy, drives me mad. I was like, you don't need to say everything you're thinking as you're playing this game. Shut up. <laughs>
1: It, it's, it's pretty insane. It, it is truly insane. But yes, I uh, I experienced very similar things in my household.
0: Yeah, I'm, I'm almost fearful for what the future is going to look like with, uh, with these generations of, of kids coming up with this. But I'm sure our parents thought the same friggin' thing about us when we were playing Atari back in the day. <laughs> Absolutely. All right, brother. Well, have yourself a beautiful day. Thank you so much. I hope uh, those listening enjoy the conversation and stay tuned for for the next drop. All right, man. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye. So there you have it, folks. I hope you enjoyed the interview. And before I sign off, I really need you to know that we really do love data centers over here at Open Spectrum. It's not just a, a catchy tagline for a podcast. They are our passion and our livelihood. And I encourage you to learn more about how we serve buyers service providers agents master agents and investors in the data center hosting network and cloud services space Uh, you can check out our website at www.openspectruminc.com where you can download a mountain of free content that we produce such as the numerous regional market reports and excerpts from our book the data center collocation industry playbook that is now on its fourth edition. You can also read the show notes and links from this podcast at www.openspectruminc.com forward slash I love data centers. Have a great week, and I will see you and, and hopefully hear from you soon.